All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, last, last time I started off by complimenting Mark's sermon. And man, he hit another home run again today. I, I, I Rarely in a sermon do I lean up in my on the edge of my seat because I'm so engaged in what's going on. And I found myself doing that today. So, like I was, I was really, I was really uh, keyed in there. And based on all of the amens around me, Mark, I was just complimenting you. I, I'm sorry you're here to hear it. <laughs> based on, yeah, based on all the amens uh, behind me and next to me and around me, it uh, it really seemed like a lot of other folks were were being moved as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We. Um, so praise God that um, that uh, people are are hearing and, and responding and hopefully being encouraged. So anyway, um, we have got a lot to get through today. We're mostly going to camp out in Genesis chapters one and two. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn or type to Genesis chapters one and two. We're going to be in there for a little bit. Now remember, this class is all about. Exploring this collection of different books and writings that uh, were put together over a period of about a thousand years called the Bible. And so that's why we named, uh, we na- I named this class Exploring Our Strange Bible. Strange might be a strange way to describe it, but the idea behind that is there's a lot of stuff in here that um, some folks find kind of weird. You know, if you were to just sit down, if, if you were interested in knowing more about Christianity and then you sat down and started reading through Genesis, things are going to get weird fast. And uh, so, you know, I wanted to give us an opportunity to kind of work through some of these things. So today, I want to spend a lot of time in Genesis 1 and 2, because if you want to know what something's about, right, it helps to begin in the beginning. All right, so... That's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to work through some stuff in Genesis 1 and 2. And today's class title is, You Might Not Have Known This About the Old Testament. All right. So, think about, in Genesis 1, easy question. Okay, this is a softball. Easy question just to get us talking. How many days of creation do we see in Genesis 1? I'm hearing six or seven because some people are anticipating, am I going to pull a fast one on you? Technically, yes, God creates in six, and then, okay, on the seventh day, what does God do? He rests. Very good. Let's turn. <laughs> he does take a cosmic siesta. That's right. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and we will uh, we'll read a little bit on into chapter 2. People who put the chapter divisions in there. Uh, probably could have started chapter 2 somewhere about halfway through chapter 2, verse 4. But here's, what, uh, here's kind of a summary statement, kind of a recap of Genesis chapter 1. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and earth were finished in all their multitude, and on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it 
God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Okay, so we are correct, right? God rested on the seventh day. Let me ask, why did God rest? Was he tired? Show of hands, did you think, do you think God was tired? No brave souls. Okay, all right, so we can probably rule out God was tired. All right, so that still leaves us with the question, why did God rest? Wanted to enjoy his creation? Yeah, that's a good answer. Does anybody have anything that they would want to add to that? Are we sure he wasn't tired? <laughs> I mean, I, if you look at verse 3, it says, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. True, yeah, that's, yeah. It's, it, it, we could take it that way. I'm hesitant because just elsewhere, you know, Scripture presents God as, uh, as all-powerful. I, I would think probably not, but it does kind of lead, lead one to, to look at it that way. Well, maybe he's not tired in the physical sense. Maybe he's tired of uh, doing something because he wants to stop doing that. Possibly. Pause, take a break, look okay. at what he's done. Consider what's happening. Okay. Yeah, Mike has uh, Mike has raised some good points. Maybe God wants to pause from all that work, take a step back. Maybe he wanted to have a day that he made holy so that his creation would um, worship him. Okay. Maybe a day to uh, to have a, a holy day in order for creation to uh, to express their appreciation. All right. Let me pose another question that might help us understand these texts that we just read. In the ancient world, okay, think ancient world, whatever you have heard about, you know, people from ancient times. In the ancient world, in what kinds of buildings did people believe gods and goddesses stayed or lived? All right, here. There, in the, sorry, in the ancient world, people built special kinds of buildings for gods and goddesses. To live and stay in what were those kinds of buildings called temples, temples. yeah temples pantheon. very good what's that a pantheon. a pantheon yeah which is essentially a, a very complicated temple yeah did you know that in ancient near eastern sources okay so when we talk about places like israel and you've heard terms like mesopotamia or babylon or places like that the way to convenient the convenient term for that is ancient Near Eastern, as opposed to something like ancient Greco-Roman, which would be Greek and Roman, right? So the Mediterranean basis shift to the east just a little bit. Did you know that in the ancient Near East there is a connection with creation and the building of temples? So in the ancient Near East, the, in all of these sources, all these other pagan sources and in biblical sources, there appears to be a connection with creating the cosmos and construction of a temple, meaning a place for a god or goddess to dwell. Here's a quote from an Old Testament scholar that kind of gives us a, a hint 
as to what some ancient pagans thought. All right, so follow me here. In the famous Babylonian creation epic, okay, so Babylon, think you know, modern-day Iraq. In the famous Babylonian creation epic, how many of you have heard the term Enuma Elish before? A couple of us, maybe if you uh, studied some world history, or if you remember world lit. All right, so Babylon, ancient Babylonians, right, they have their own creation stories. Theirs is called the Enuma Elish. The work of creation by their god, Marduk, is followed by the building of a temple for him. So Marduk creates the cosmos, and then they build a temple for him. The gods, so again, this is ancient Babylon, the gods give Marduk kingship, and Marduk responds with this statement, below the firmament whose grounding I have made firm, I shall build a house, let it be the abode of my pleasure. Within it, I shall establish its holy place. I shall appoint my holy chambers. I shall establish my kingship. Re quick recap. Marduk, this Babylonian god, according to their mythology, right, has created first the cosmos, and then to cap off the creation of the world, he's going to build a temple for himself. In the ancient world, temples were considered to be a kind of place in, you know, from which the deity ruled or a home for a deity to rest in the sense of kind of settle down and get to the business of ruling. Let's pause that for a moment and make an analogy with something that we are probably more familiar with. What was God doing in the tabernacle and in the temple? Think Old Testament and New Testament. What was God doing in the tabernacle and in the temple? Was he just hanging out in there? Probably not. What do you think God would have been doing from his throne? And there we go. God in his throne, right? God is seated on his throne. And the, and the temple is kind of a, a way of recreating that. We're going to draw, we're, we're pulling on different strands here. We're going to connect all these here in just a minute. So in the ancient world, temples were considered to be kind of like a palace. So every temple it's kind of like a palace from which that god or goddess ruled. And that was like a home for the deity to rest in. Rest in the sense of kind of settle down and get to work. Now we tend to think of rest as something else, but follow me here. I'm quoting again from this, other, uh, from this Old Testament scholar. In the ancient world, rest... Rest is what results when a crisis has been resolved or when stability has been achieved, when things have settled down, okay, when stability has been achieved. All right, now quick, think about the days of creation, right? All kinds of things are happening one after another, day one, day two. Yeah, we could start singing day one, day one. Okay, we can start singing that song. All right. Exactly, yeah, okay. So we could start singing that song, right? All kinds of things are happening. And then finally, at the end of day six, right, things have stopped 
being created, stability has been achieved. Peace. Hebrew word for that would be a word that y'all might be familiar with. Shalom. Order. In the best sense. Peace. Stability. That has been achieved. Okay. In the ancient world, rest is what results when a crisis has been resolved or when stability has been achieved, when things have settled down. John Walton goes on to say, Consequently, normal routines can be established and enjoyed for a deity. Again, this is ancient thinking. For a deity, this means that the normal operations of the cosmos can be undertaken. This is more a matter of engagement without obstacles rather than disengagement without responsibilities. So when ancient people tended to talk about gods resting, that didn't always mean they take a break, kick their feet up, and they relax. What they tended to mean was now this god or goddess can settle in and get down to work. It took me uh, uh, maybe about a week or so after we moved here last year. It's already been a year. We've been here over a year. Moved here last August. It took me about a week or so to get, maybe a couple weeks, to get all of my books and stuff up on the shelves. And then about halfway through Christmas break, I totally readjusted my office in there. It took me a, a little while to actually get settled and get into the work that the elders had asked me to do. But once I finally got everything settled and ready, I was able to rest, meaning I was ready to start getting things going. We're able to operate under normal conditions. Now, in the ancient Near East, when your preferred god or goddess, right, remember, you know, they're polytheistic, right? They believe in many gods. If you were an ancient Israelite or just you know, some other ancient person, when your deity was ruling from their temple, that meant that there was peacefulness in the world. That meant that things were good. Question, how many times in Genesis 1 and the first couple of verses of Genesis 2, how many times does the word good occur? How many, if you had to guess what might be a good biblical number for the word good, I'm hearing seven. Is it any surprise that God looks and pronounces creation seven times good and the seventh one is not just good, right? It's very good. On the day in which God rests, things are very good. So, here's what I want you to think about when we get to this strange phrase. Take a look at Genesis 2, verse 2. All right, open back up to Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. When God rests on the seventh day, I want to invite you to think about rest in this way. God doesn't just kick his feet up and take a nap. God is probably not tired. The all-powerful God is probably not tired. And he doesn't just sit back 
and watch things happen. Instead, he gets down to the business of ruling what he has created. God gets down to the business of ruling what he has created. And what did we just say earlier about where do deities live in the ancient mindset? In temples. If God is settling down on the seventh day and settling in, and he's going to rule creation, I want us to think about the Garden of Eden as a kind of temple-type space. The Garden of Eden, this place where God has created heavens and earth. The Garden of Eden, where God creates all this and then he rests, meaning he settles down into the work of ruling creation. The Garden of Eden is no longer just this beautiful place for humans that God made. The Garden of Eden is, in a sense, like a temple, like a cosmic temple that God himself has created. Here's another reason why I think we should perceive Eden to be a temple or a sacred space. Flip over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Linnea, do you have Genesis 3, 8? If somebody has Genesis chapter 3, Ron, will you read that nice and loud for us, please, sir? Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Okay. What is God doing in the garden? He's just walking. Okay. All right. Back up another second, and I'm going to ask a very obvious question. Where is God in this situation? He's in the garden. God is there. Well, wherever God is, that's sacred space, right? It's holy, right? Would we all be willing to affirm that? Wherever God is, right, that's, a, that's holy sacred space. Why were people not allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant just because they wanted to? It was holy. Could you just walk up into the Holy of Holies anytime you wanted to? Why not? <laughs> not unless you wanted to die. Yeah. Tradition has it that the high priest on the Day of Atonement, on the one day that he was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, they would tie a rope around his foot in case he didn't make it. So they could pull him out without having to breach the holy space. So God is there in the Garden of Eden, which, if you're following me, which is a type of temple space. Now, if you're not used to thinking about Eden this way, I think Isaiah chapter 66 gives us a little clue. If you want to, you can turn over to Isaiah chapter 66. I will read those verses for us. Quick review, though. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created which two spaces? Heavens and the earth. 
Notice that both heaven and earth get mentioned here in these verses in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Already right there, God fills both of those spaces and rules from both of those spaces. Heaven his throne, earth his footstool. He spans both of those spaces. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? There's that word rest again. Connecting it with a house from which God will rule. Isaiah 66 verse 2. All these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And he goes on to talk a little bit more about you know, the importance of humility and being contrite in spirit. But notice here, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and then the first half of verse 2. He connects the throne and connects this notion of heaven and earth, creation, being a place where God rules from. The underlying question in the first half of verse, uh, uh, the second half of verse 1, still in Isaiah 66. The underlying question in this verse is, how can you build something comparable to the cosmos which are already my dwelling? That's essentially what God is asking here in these verses. How can you, whether it's Solomon or speaking to Isaiah or anybody else, how can you build something comparable to the cosmos which are already my dwelling? Okay, well, since the cosmos, the created order, right? Heaven and earth, okay? Since that is God's dwelling place, I submit to you that it is essentially the same thing as saying the cosmos, cosmos including the earth, is supposed to be viewed as God's temple. It's supposed to be viewed as His sanctuary, Eden, the Garden of Eden is supposed to be viewed in the ancient mindset when Israelites heard this read and they saw creation, creating spaces first. Days 1, 2, and 3 create spaces. Days 4, 5, and 6 create inhabitants for those spaces. And then in the seventh day, God Himself takes up residence in all of those spaces, ancient Israelites would have read these verses and thought, wow, this is more than just showing us how these things came to be. This is God showing us that He is going to rule over the space that He has made, the space where He has settled into. Quick pause for a moment. The main point that I'm driving home right now is this. In the ancient world, particularly amongst ancient Israelites, God was wanting to create a space that filled both heaven and earth for Him to rule. But there's more to it than just that. Let's take a look. 
I've got a lot of other things that we could have gotten to, but we had, a, we had good reason to go long in there. Here's something that I want to, uh, I want to look at. God, all right, so if you followed me so far, God has created this temple space. Think about the Garden of Eden like a temple. All right, that's, if you come away with nothing more than that, think about the Garden of Eden like a temple because God is there ruling. Question, does God rule alone in that temple? Or does he have anyone else there he wants to rule with him? Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We'll get there in a second. Let me ask this question, though. What does it mean that people are created in God's image? What do you think? What does it mean that people are created in God's image? Do they have two eyes and a nose because God has two eyes and a nose? Possibly, yeah, we have souls. Rich? Could it be the knowledge of good and evil, the difference between the two, the ability to make a choice? So we're kind of rational creatures, right? A lot of, <laughs> sometimes, yeah. Yeah, social media might uh, put the lie to that. Yeah, um, possibly. Cal, Cal or Ron, did one of y'all have a hand up over here? No? Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, it really does seem like humans kind of have a sort of a, a special pride of place amongst creation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, um, that's a that's a right yeah there was um, there's a good reason that those those things died out a long time ago all right let me ask this question take a look at uh, Genesis 1:26 okay Genesis 1:26 and oh excuse me I actually click somewhere else Genesis 1:26 and uh, let's see. Right here in this verse, then God said, let us make humans, right? The idea is humans here. Let us make man in our image, in our image. This might surprise you. You might not, known this, you might not have known this about the Old Testament. This word for image here in Hebrew, this word for image here in Hebrew elsewhere gets used to mean something like idol or statue. Had you heard that before? I'll repeat that again because it's kind of strange. When in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us make humans in our image, that Hebrew word for image can elsewhere be used in the Hebrew Bible to mean idol, statue, a viceroy or a representative. So let me ask this question. It might seem unrelated, but it's actually kind of cool when you check all this down. Why did God forbid the Israelites from making idols? Not just idols in general, but particularly idols of Him. 
Why did God forbid the Israelites from making idols? That's why you're my favorite Bible student. <laughs> Linnea, say it uh, loudly again, and you're welcome to translate in Spanish also if, you, <laughs> if you'd like to. He no. already made his perfect image in us. He already made his perfect idol. God had already made his perfect image in us. That is correct, and that's where I'm going to go. Let me track a couple of other things first. Why did God forbid the Israelites from making idols? Well, nothing in creation can adequately depict God, right? The Egyptians had idols of all kinds of strange animals, right? If you've seen the mummy or you've seen literally any picture of Egypt where they have alligator you know, deities and bugs and stuff like that and cats. Y'all heard the old joke, right? Cats uh, remember that they were worshipped in, e in Egypt and for thousands of years later they've never forgotten that. Yeah. Rich. Uh, right, yeah. Yeah, yes, sir. In our likeness, that's right. Yeah, it goes on to say that, uh, yep, very true. And that kind of helps explain a little bit of what image is there. Nothing in creation can adequately depict God. That is true in one sense. Now, in God's temple, right, in God's temple, which expands, right, which includes both heaven and earth. Remember, we're thinking of Eden like a temple. God himself rules in this temple, in this Eden temple. But God has also created his own representatives to image, to represent him on the earth. And that's humans. God didn't, so to get to Linnaeus' point, God didn't want the Israelites making idols of him, making little statues or representations of him, because why? God himself had already done that when he created humans. If we take the Hebrew text seriously, God himself had already created his commissioned representatives when he created humans. Now, I asked earlier, is God ruling alone? Or was there anyone there that God wanted to partner with? Let's take a look at Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28. Yeah. So God created... I'll read from the ESV because it's a little bit more familiar to us. So God created man, meaning humans, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them... Male and female, he created them. Verse 28 gives us a clue to what we're talking about here. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. Over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. When you talk about subduing and having dominion, doesn't that sound like you have been given a task to exercise authority over a given area, right? Doesn't it sound like you have some job to fulfill? Like a commission. Like a commission. 
I need you to be a steward. I need you to watch over this. I am commissioning you to exercise authority in the way that I would, God says. Humans being created as images of God, God therefore have the task of ruling the earth alongside God. And it's all right there in Genesis 1. A way to think about this is this. God envisioned humans being really kind of like royal priests. I know I don't use the word priest here in Churches of Christ, um, but we kind of should, though, because the New Testament uses that term to talk about all Christians. We're a royal priesthood. Priest, don't think of like super Christian versus regular Christian. That's not how the New Testament talks about it. Same with the word saint. We get called God's holy ones. Another translation of that is the word saint. Don't think super Christian, where you have to meet certain criteria, right, to be, you know, sainted. Don't think super Christian. The New Testament calls all of God's holy ones, that's all of us, saints. So therefore, it's appropriate to greet each other as Saint Mike, Saint Sean, <laughs> you know. Sandy Richardson, if any of y'all know her, I always call her Saint Sandy. It has a little alliteration, right? Saint Jerry, that's going to stick. And we're going to make it stick, okay? All right. That might weird y'all out. It's biblical. Trust me. But we are, in one sense, priests. The New Testament uses this language. The Old Testament does too. Turn to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Hopefully what you're beginning to see here is, my goodness, Creation, our, the created cosmos, and our role as created people being created in God's image, this is so much more significant. It is so much bigger. God intended something so much bigger than what so many of us have thought about in the past. Now, this is God right before he's about to give the Ten Commandments, right, before he, right after he had redeemed Israel out of Egypt. He says this, now, therefore, if you, meaning all the Israelites, will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, telling Moses, commissioning Moses to give this message. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Okay, question. Did Israel have a special group of people called priests? Yes, they did. Yeah. But in another sense, isn't all of Israel supposed to be kind of like a priest? Ushering in God's will to the world, showing God's characteristics to the world, ideally bringing the nation's in to God. He calls them the chosen people. Yeah. He chose them to bring forth the Savior. Exactly. Chosen to, be chosen to represent this. We're at our time. 
But I want to wrap up with this. God has been doing this kind of thing ever since Genesis 1. Genesis 1. God creates Eden, which is a cosmic temple from which God himself rules, and he willingly partnered with humans. Willingly partnered with humans. He didn't have to create us, but he not only creates humans and then says, okay, while I'm here in my temple, by implication, you therefore rule over this. God began this process of creation again when he redeemed the Hebrews from Egypt. The text says, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. There's nothing there, right? It's, it's wild, it's chaotic, and God starts to bring order, peace, beauty, goodness to the chaos. God brings the Hebrews out of the chaos and disorder from Egypt through the waters and then begins to create a new kingdom with new priests. So if you're going to live in God's midst and therefore close to his temple, right? You track all that on through Exodus and you see this notion of, well, what do they start building for God after God gives them the Ten Commandments? They build a special place for God. A tabernacle. God has brought them. God has basically begun a new creation with the people at the Exodus. Well, if you're going to have a new people, if, you're going to, if there's going to be new creation, then God needs a new space for him to be with his people, and that is the tabernacle. Fast forward over a thousand years to Jesus and begins the process again, this time with an eternal consequence that God is beginning in Christ a new creation, creating again within people, passing them through the chaotic waters of baptism, beginning a new creation with His Spirit, having a new cosmic temple, the church, like Paul says in Ephesians 2. Then there's so much cool stuff in here. And they've got all these things that we just don't see because, I mean, we're like, I wasn't super familiar with how all this stuff happened in the ancient world until I got a chance to study it. But creation, new, the Exodus, new creation in Christ, all of that stuff is so much bigger it's so much bigger, it's so much grander, it's so much more significant than we have often thought. And if we can see that, then we can understand Jesus all the more. And that is precisely why I wanted to spend this amount of time with us on this thing from the Old Testament, because, once again, our track that we're working through in our class is this. The Bible is a unified story that leads people to faithfulness in Jesus. Guys, appreciate y'all's time. Sorry we ran over, but we needed to work through that. Y'all are dismissed.